0: Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast of La Trobe Asia, where we discuss the news, events and general happenings of Asia's states and societies. I'm your host, Nick Bisley, the Executive Director of La Trobe Asia. After a glorious run in the 1990s and early 2000s, democratisation in recent years has experienced a more difficult period. The optimistic liberal notion that the move away from authoritarianism and towards democracy was a one-way street has been swept aside by authoritarian backsliding in places as diverse as Thailand. Russia, Fiji and many others. Indonesia has stood out against this trend for many reasons. Its sudden and surprising move to democracy in the late 1990s has produced a vibrant multi-party electoral process in which power is transferred peacefully and in which the population clearly feels significant investment. Many also argue that Indonesia is a poster child for the compatibility of Islam and liberal political principles. And, of course, its free media is far more diverse in opinion and coverage than even many developed liberal democracies. Yet one legacy of the Suharto years appears to remain firmly entrenched in political life, and it's something that bedevils many emerging economies. Corruption. In spite of significant achievements in its anti-corruption program, largely led by actors separate from or outside the state, the overall picture remains relatively gloomy and many Indonesia watchers are pessimistic about the country's capacity to deal with this pernicious problem over the longer run. Joining me to discuss Indonesia's corruption problem and the dynamics of its anti-corruption programs is Dr. Dirk Thomsa. Dirk is a senior lecturer in the Department of Politics and Philosophy at the Trobe University and is a visiting fellow at the Institute of Southeast Asian Studies Yusuf Ishak Institute in Singapore and one of Australia's rising stars in the study of contemporary Indonesia. Welcome to the program, Dirk. Thanks for having me. Let's start with some of the basics. When we talk about corruption, what do we mean? What sort of phenomenon are we talking about? Corruption comes in various guises,
1: of course. Um, In in Indonesia, it's been entrenched at the very top of the political system for a very long time. Yeah, it's been taken over basically from the Suharto period before, um, where it was very centralized and where it happened in the political system, um, in the business world, of course. Now that we have democracy, It's become much more diversified. It's uh, moved down to the local level where local leaders have been granted much more authority due to the decentralization program. Um, So now corruption permeates basically every layer of the political system and into the business world. but it's no longer so easily
0: captured just in Jakarta. When we're talking about corruption, is this brown paper bags filled with money? Is this... The selling off of things they shouldn't be selling off—is it? You know, what? How do you sort of categorize it as a form of activity?
1: Yes, both of these <laughs> that you mentioned—they do occur um, in some of the more recent cases. Yes, there were um, people caught red-handed with cash in bags. Indeed, then there's a lot of um, you know dubious practices during budgeting. Projects are marked up. Sums are siphoned off from development projects, infrastructure projects, etc. Negotiations in parliament, getting bills through, etc. All these things um, are negotiable.
0: So it's the sort of full gamut of things in which public office holders are essentially making private gain out of their work, which otherwise should be in, quote unquote, the public good. Yeah.
1: I mean, when we when we talk about corruption in Indonesia, that's usually what we focus on. And of course, there's also the small level, the small scale corruption of the police um, stopping a motorcycle driver and, you know, letting him go for a little payment. Um, but that's usually far less of a concern when we talk about corruption
0: in Indonesia. Yeah. If you hold Indonesia up on, let's say, an international comparison scale, so how how corrupt mm-hmm. is Indonesia? Where does it stand vis-a-vis other countries? And what's the sort of scale of the problem we're talking about?
1: Well, the scale is that, of course, that the state loses a lot of money through these corrupt practices, um, through the dubious budgeting practices, for example, uh, in the legislation process, etc. On an international scale, Indonesia, I haven't checked the latest figures from Transparency International, but I think... Um, they are hovering around ranks 100, 110 um, out of 170-odd countries that are uh, measured there, I think. Kind of around the middle-ish. Yeah. They've made teeny tiny progress over the last few years. Um, so where zero is the worst corrupt, nine is the cleanest, I think. They had a, um, a score of three points. 1 or 3.2 or so, I think, in the not, last not Transparency pa- International.
0: Not a passing grade, is it? No. So, so there's a lot of work
1: to be done, certainly. And, um, I mean... Transparency International is only about perceptions of corruption, but that's mm.
0: the only way how we can sort of measure. Got the standing of a bit of a kind of international good housekeeping stamp of approval on, on yeah. this kind of stuff. Yeah. Not a world leader in the sense, but it's still <laughs> certainly not anywhere near um, best practice. People know that this is a significant part of political life in Indonesia. Is it? Is corruption something that has political salience amongst the electorate, or is it sort of just... That's the kind of country we live in, and that's just how things operate. Is it so? Say, is it something that you could make electoral hay out of if you wanted to?
1: Mm. Yeah, it's interestingly, it's it's not quite easy to answer. It, it would seem straightforward that uh, people want this to improve, so they elect um, candidates with a clean track record, etc. And that, of course, has happened. If we think about the last presidential election, Jokowi, the current president part of his image was that he would be a clean politician, he came from the local level and that he would do something to improve the fight against corruption. So yes, there are candidates who can score points with the electorate on the basis of a fight against corruption. But at the same time, if you look at the local level in particular, all over the country, we have people who get elected, even though they've spent time in jail for corruption before, even though they've been implicated in ongoing investigations um, during the campaign. So it's not that black and white for some people it's a plus if you can have the credentials of a clean politician for others it doesn't seem to matter if they have been implicated in corruption before
0: we tend to think about corruption certainly you know if you're coming from a you know, western liberal democracy sort of, if you don't look at this stuff closely that corruption is what happens in authoritarian sort of poor countries and as you get more democratic then corruption drops away and certainly that's the kind of nice happy liberal <laughs> thinking Indonesia moved to democracy in the late 1990s, did so fairly rapidly. What did Indonesia do at the start to try and tackle this problem? What steps were sort of taken to manage corruption or try to push back the corrupt practices of the Suharto period? Well, it
1: took a few years before steps were actually taken. Um, It proved impossible to go after Suharto himself. Some of his cronies that is his close um, business um, friends who had benefited from Suato um, the most, they were tried in the early years, they were put on trial and some were jailed. But the vast majority of people who were involved in these corrupt practices at the top, they got away and they retained important positions in the system. So even though you had now democratic procedures in place, the people who filled the new democratic institutions had fairly little interest in changing that. Then a few years after the introduction of democracy i think it was around 2002 2003 a law was passed creating an anti-corruption commission once it began operating it turned out to be a remarkably successful institution probably much more successful than uh, the people who signed off on that bill had anticipated at the time the kpk as it's called um, the anti-corruption commission is now the sort of the spearhead of the anti-corruption campaign um, it goes after big fish as well as smaller ones, but mostly really prominent people um, in business, in politics, in the bureaucracy, and has had some remarkable success. But it's a sort of it's, an, I think someone called it an island of integrity within a system that remains tainted by corrupt practices. So it can only do that much. and for every corrupt politician
0: that they catch, there will be numerous others who get away. And it's a national body, isn't it? It's sort of physically based in Jakarta and tends to focus overwhelmingly on firstly national level Jakarta-based and then sort of Javanese-based corruption and simplifying perhaps a little bit Mm. that the further you get from Jakarta, the further you get from Java, its grip or its reach drops away.
1: Yeah, that's probably not a question of intent or willingness. I mean, they they do pursue cases in the outer islands too, but it's more difficult often because they lack the resources uh, for investigation, Um, there's often not enough local manpower, for example, civil society activists who could cooperate with the authorities or with the Anti-Corruption Commission. So in Jakarta and in Java, you have a critical mass who sort of helps the KPK in its investigations. Once it gets out to the more remote areas, it's often much more difficult to establish the cases. I I
0: think the point a lot of people have made is the success of this stuff comes from civil society, media, non-state forces that are interacting with the commission to produce outcomes that essentially that infrastructure isn't there.
1: Yeah and precisely because that infrastructure is missing in the outer islands where we do have cases in the outer islands it often comes out of the elite rather than from people who have a a more genuine or sincere interest in going Mm -hmm. after corruptors. Um, Where we do get cases, um, these people often get dopped in by political rivals or victims um, in power struggles. And then a few months or a year before an election, a case surfaces in the local media, which is often controlled by politicians. And yeah, then the Kappa of course, picks up these cases and then they have had some relatively spectacular successes in the outer islands as well but yeah often it's it seems rather random how they go about these cases.
0: Yeah so I was was going to ask what's the sort of dynamics or patterns of behavior in this anti-corruption either within Jakarta itself or in in Java the closer you are or further out is there given that it's ultimately not resourced or have the reach to tackle it in a systematic manner. Mm-hmm. Does it pick and choose? Is mm-hmm. there a degree of arbitrariness? It's a rock with which you can chuck at your enemies.
1: From the outside, it certainly appears as if there is a certain degree of arbitrariness. I mean, they get a lot of cases are being taken to the carpet car, but um, they are very meticulous in their investigations and they need some clear leads where they're confident that they can build a strong case. Often this is missing if this is sort of gossipy um, allegations, which is often the case, especially further away uh, from Jakarta. But if they get strong leads and if there is clear indication that they can get the evidence, then they pick their cases according to that.
0: So how does this play out in terms of local politics? Dynamics of corruption, anti-corruption, do they shape the pattern of either local or national politics? Is it just one part in the big electoral mix?
1: There's, there's no really clear pattern. You, you've had people getting elected um, in some... Regions where you think it's it's impossible that voters would elect these people um, because they have been implicated in so many cases But that's not a phenomenon that's limited to the local level at the national level You have some people who reinvent themselves all the time despite frequent implications in corruption So the electorate does seem to respond to this issue Not in a very clear-cut manner. They do seem to favor clean politicians in certain electorates, especially in the more urban ones where levels of education of the voters are higher whereas in more remote or rural areas it doesn't seem to matter that much. Um, people are more concerned that things get done in terms of infrastructure, health, education, whatever matters to them and um, often there's a sense of fatalism as well that politicians are all corrupt anyway so it doesn't really matter as long as someone gets things
0: done. we to turn to um, Jokowi now. You know, he's been in power for a, a good chunk of time now, made his big electoral platform on the outsider, mm-hmm. the man of the people, clean political figure who would make life better for the ordinary Indonesian. Is this setting up unrealistic expectations on him? People expect him to be able to deliver something he simply isn't going to be able to deliver. And And more generally, how is the sort of ongoing problems with corruption in the country affecting his standing and his government
1: yeah for the first part of the question yes he came in on the reputation that he had developed a good track record at the local level he was uh, mayor of solo a small town in central java and then governor of jakarta where he had with a sort of technocratic uh, managerial style yeah, you know, succeeded in to use the phrase again, in getting things done and getting programs for especially for health and education, clean the bureaucracy a bit. So he had a reputation that he was a good leader in that sense. But he was also coming from the local level. He was not a member of the established Jakarta elite. Um, so he was not implicated in any of those wheelings and dealings that everyone knows about. In addition, he was meant to be a man of the people. He liked to mingle with you know, with ordinary people during the campaign. So all this sort of contributed to the expectation that when he becomes president, he will just continue to be like that. And of course, it turned out to be near impossible. Once he got into the presidential palace, he had to deal with all the other interests in Jakarta's political system, political parties in parliament with the bureaucracy, party infrastructure, the party that nominated him, for example, for the presidency was not really fully behind him. Um, some in the party were, others were not. Uh, so he had various battles to fight, which would have made it impossible for any president to immediately get things off the ground. So there was a sense of disappointment about his performance in the first year, but that was definitely based on these
0: overly high expectations. That he which had. he made up for by exploding lots of fishing trawlers, I believe.
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> his um, Minister for Fishery and Maritime Affairs because of that, is the most popular cabinet member in Indonesia. So, yeah, he was looking for yeah for ways to improve or to counter the negative effects of his various missteps in the first year. That was one of them, blowing up um, illegal fishing boats. Another was, of course, his controversial stance on the death penalty when they executed um, various foreigners last year. This was playing to a domestic audience. Um, Death penalty is popular in Indonesia, so he could regain some points there. His standings in the polls has improved. I think people have now come to the realization that these expectations were unrealistic. And now, gradually, his numbers are improving a bit and he's starting to find his feet within the system. Corruption issue was one of those things which he mishandled. He handled poorly in the beginning. There was a dispute between the police and the Anti-Corruption Commission early last year. He had various opportunities to solve that or to intervene, he didn't. So it escalated. The Anti-Corruption Commission was weakened as a result of that. So he was seen as not defending the fight against corruption and that affected his poll numbers early last year. The issue is on the agenda again. Parliament is discussing revisions to the bill on the Anti-Corruption Commission. They very clearly want to weaken the Anti Corruption Commission. The draft that is circulating at the moment has various measures that would make it much more difficult for the KPK car to operate in the way that they have so far. Jokowi now has an opportunity to sort of make up for his past mistakes, and he seems to be doing that. He has, so far at least, um, it's still being negotiated, but so far he has said that he will not back revisions to this bill.
0: So. We'll see where this is going. See how it pans out. Well, Indonesian politics remains complex and always fascinating. Dirk, thanks for being part of the program. Thank you. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast of the Trobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to Asia Rising on iTunes or SoundCloud. And while you're there, leave a rating and a review to help us spread the word. Thanks for listening.